Hello and welcome to the Potential Psychology Podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Jackson, and it's my mission to share the science of human behaviour in a practical, fun and inspiring way. In each podcast episode, I interview an expert from the fields of psychology, well-being, leadership, parenting or high performance. I pick their brain to uncover what they know about living well, what tips do they have for you and I, and I quiz them about how they apply their expertise in their own life. Join me as we discover simple, science-backed ways to live, learn, flourish, and fulfil your potential. Hello, this is episode 32 of the Potential Psychology Podcast, and I am your host, Ellen Jackson, workplace psychologist, writer, blogger, consultant, mother to boys, chicken whisperer, and today, enjoyer of the peaceful, calm and air conditioning of Platypus co-working here in Ballarat. It's 39 degrees Celsius outside in our little corner of the world, and I'm very pleased to be inside talking to you and not out there in the heat. So how are you? Where are you? Is it hot where you are right now or very, very cold? Um, It's kind of mind-bending. It's a mind-bending thing to be sitting here talking to you and wondering whether you are listening on the other side of the world in entirely different climatic conditions or perhaps here in my hometown of Ballarat. And before I introduce our guest for today's episode, and he and I will be talking a bit about things happening on a global scale, I want to share with you something that I learned this week, and sadly, it's about the fragility of life. A wonderful member of our online community, a friend that I've made through a shared interest in personal growth and psychology was struck the cruelest of blows recently when her husband died suddenly following an awfully tragic accident just a few days ago. And my heart dropped when I heard this news as all I could think of for at least 24 hours. And in fact, it is still consuming me and I know consuming so many people is Kelly and her two children and how their lives changed so completely in just a matter of moments and I watched as the wonderful community of family and friends that she and Anthony had built around them rallied in support and love and care and whilst that was a wonderful thing I still really struggled not just with the hopelessness and the meaningless of the situation but also with the idea that when tragic things like this happen and we're exhorted to hold our own people a little closer and to be grateful for what we have. And while I really wanted to do that, and I really did want to do that, instead I've just felt really angry. Angry at the world for letting bad things happen to good people and angry that so much of the future that Kelly had no doubt imagined for herself has been ripped away so suddenly, and angry for the loss of a man who did nothing wrong, a father, there are children now without him, a family now exists without him, and and it's made me angry, and I know that anger is pointless, and I know it doesn't change anything But I've also learned recently that it doesn't help to try to rationalise and deny our feelings, that when we feel it's important to acknowledge those feelings, even if they don't make any sense or in some way feel like they help in any way, and even if they're pointless and they're stupid and 
they're annoying. But I've been allowing my anger not to consume me, but just to exist. And I'm hoping that it does pass soon. And Kelly, if you're listening, know that so many of us are feeling angry and sad on your behalf. And again, I know it doesn't help, but if in some way it can even take the tiniest piece of your pain away, then we will wear those difficult emotions with pride. Okay, let's move on as best we can. It's time to introduce our guest for today's episode and talk about the good that we can do in the world by preparing everyone, our families, our schools, our communities, and maybe even our nation, help them to prepare for well-being and perhaps the resilience that we all need when life is difficult. I'm very excited today to have with me Professor Lindsay Odes. Lindsay is the Director of the Centre for Positive Psychology at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, which is part of the University of Melbourne. His formal training is in psychology and business, and he's taught applied psychology at both the undergraduate and postgraduate levels for 20 years within psychology, nursing, business and educational faculties here in Australia, in Hong Kong and in Japan. He speaks at conferences around the world. He's published more than 100 peer-reviewed journal articles and scholarly book chapters, which have been cited well over 2,000 times. Lindsay approaches life as an adventurer. He firmly believes that well-being is everybody's business, and he seeks to constantly enable others to enable others. And I reckon this makes him the perfect guest for the show. Today, Lindsay is joining me to talk about how we learn to thrive. Welcome, Lindsay. Thanks, Helen. Lovely to be here. I'm excited to have you here. I was just saying before we hit record that it, um, I've taken, a, I've had you on my list of guests to interview since we began the podcast. So it's nice to be starting 2019, which is when people will be listening to this, with you as a guest. And before we get into the psychological stuff, because I know you've got a lot of really interesting and complex stuff to talk about that moves beyond psychology into philosophy and economics and, and the political arena. I wanted you to tell us a little bit about your life as an adventurer. What is the adventuring that you do? Oh, my life as an adventurer. Yeah. Well, physically, it used to probably be a lot more adventurous than it is now. Um, I've done a lot of walking, bushwalking around the world in, in, in different places, including Nepal, North America, lots around Australia, but also a bunch of scuba diving. done a lot of scuba diving, um, did some mountaineering, um, in Canada, um, they're all uh, whitewater rafting, those sorts of things, all the, all the sort of typical things you think of as an adventurer. Um, but more importantly, I probably like to think of that in ideas and actually taking a few risks about what you are and are not allowed to say and do in terms of the way we think about big ideas, uh, etc. So I very much hold that close to me in terms of sustaining myself in 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 say the academic world and uh, taking a few risks here and there and about what we questioning assumed ways of things okay so it's a, a philosophy of adventuring as well as a practical element yeah as i said the physical the physical adventure is probably reducing a little but um hopefully <laughs> compensating through through, uh, through the ideas more intellectual adventuring yeah that's it Interesting that you say that, that particularly within academic confines. I mean, you're, you're working in academia, which is, well, from my exposure to it at least, can be kind of 
constraining in terms of, you know, what you should and shouldn't do and how you should and shouldn't do it. What's the reaction been from your colleagues to pushing the boundaries of that a little? Um, it, it usually depends on which colleagues. Um, <laughs> but actually, I mean, the, the fundamental idea of, of, of a university or good, good academic work is, or the old role of the university was to challenge ideas, was to question the received view of things in society. So if you look at some things like feminist theory, that certainly, that, that certainly did that. Um, and that, and a lot of that comes out of people in the university contexts. So received well by some people. Specifically, I'm talking about things like uh, how each discipline sort of does its work and, and not a lot of interdisciplinary exchange, those sorts of things uh, and, and separations between, uh, in our case, uh, psychology, economics, philosophy get a bit separated and they each might do work on wellbeing but not, not actually share enough sideways of uh, what they're doing so the adventurous part is journeying across all of those disciplines and learning what's going on they're like foreign lands in some ways okay so this is part of your personal mission perhaps then to try and draw these different disciplines together in a, a joint focus on well-being absolutely Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that. And one of the things I heard you speak recently on ABC Radio with the wonderful Libby Gore about the importance to you and, and maybe to psychology, and this probably lends itself to what we we're just talking about, of moving away in part from a, a more medical model, which seems to have been, if not the current, certainly the recent historical approach to psychology, and moving away that towards something else. What, what do you mean by that? Um, probably the, the key word or the key phrase I use there is, is medicalization of distress. So not not necessarily a medical model overall, but take a 12-year-old young person, for example, boy or girl saying they don't want to go to school or they're, they're feeling nervous. Um, how do we immediately think about that? What do we immediately think of? And do we start thinking about anxiety disorders, depression or whatever? How do we how do we literally conceptualize and make sense of it? If we by default, go to medicalized models, so we, we start to think of anxiety disorders or, or whatever, uh, and then we start talking about treatment. That might be appropriate for some people, but if it's our default, then, then I have concerns about where that takes us and the, and the unintended consequences of, of a, a medical approach. So if we go down that route and we start medicalizing everything and we start putting more and more medical professionals in schools, which is... Um, being talked about and is happening in the one sense that's a really good thing because there's a lot of unmet need but I'm talking about the overall approach of society to the way they think and conceptualize that an alternative approach would be talking about the young 12 year old we could say well this person hasn't yet learned how to manage their emotions or they have or their context hasn't enabled them to learn how to deal with or push through something so rather than treatment being the default idea the default conceptualization learning could be so I'm very much in that space of talking about the difference between those two okay so as you're speaking then I was sort of imagining really like a, a pendulum you know once upon a time we don't want to go back to those days where kids at school were just told to basically shut up and get on with it, <laughs> that their distress was was perhaps ignored in such a situation. But maybe has the pendulum swung, do you think, too far to a, a 
tendency to kind of automatically think, oh, if this child's distressed, there's something fundamentally wrong or clinically wrong here that might need treating and fixing. Is it about finding a middle ground or is it a different ground altogether? Absolutely. There's, I mean, there's a couple of things going on here. One is a sort of a, the tough-minded versus tender-minded approach. So tough-minded was, you know, buck up, work it out for yourself, do that, do that, you know, that sort of attitude. Um, and that's not what I'm talking about here. But at the same time, distress is part of human experience. It's not pleasant, but we can learn how to manage it, learn how to deal with it rather than necessarily medicalizing it and therefore saying it needs treatment, usually by another. So, you know, if you look at the discourse, it's like, oh, I have distress. Therefore, you should seek professional services, which is also, therefore, we should take it out of the community Mm -hmm. uh, and give it over to someone else because they're expert and you're not. That's part of the concern I have. But the flip side of it is, no, it's not just telling everyone to stoically get on with it. But at the same time, we don't necessarily, at a default level, need to go straight to a medical conceptualization of, of lots of parts of our human and social experience. And this is the challenge because people listening to this could easily misinterpret it and say, well, uh, Professor Rose from the University of Melbourne was, was saying that everything to do with treatment is wrong. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm, I'm looking at what are our, our base level assumptions um, about this and how we're setting setting things up. I would argue we could basically move treatment centres into all of our schools and I don't think that's going to bring bring us the solutions that society is looking for. I'm talking about a much more broad-based educational approach, not just for schools but for society, where people are enabled to deal with the, the human and social interactions, deal with the distress of that and not have to not not go downhill, so they do need services. So not just going upstream, but going outwards as well. That is sharing the responsibility and and making it part of standard curriculum, etc., to get some solutions to these big problems. Because at the moment, we keep hearing one in five people have mental illness. Youth suicide rates are very large, incredibly distressing, real issues. But then. Ironically, we keep throwing the same attempted solutions at them, that is more medical services, and then we add more and we say that's a success, and then we add a bit more and that's a success. But then at the same time, we, we still keep hearing the problems are, are happening. So let's have a rethink. Let's actually look at it in a different way, look at it from a learning paradigm and look at it from a whole of community uh, responsibility type angle. Okay, and, and that was what struck me then as you were speaking was was it's about um, guessing from the sounds of it, finding that middle ground between where the pendulum swung in both directions and that that's a place of, of growth and learning. Definitely. Yeah, no, that's definitely right. I mean, I've, I've, there's a few pendulums swinging. <laughs> I mean, there's the, med- there's the medical versus non-medical. There's the, uh, the focus on the negative versus the focus on well-being or positive. Uh, I would argue for a very much for a capability approach. You know, what what can you be and do that type of model, which is actually when you when you logically track it through, takes you to a different place. Often, what people will do in a conversation unwittingly is you'll be talking to them about say well-being or the student or a person being capable, and they'll say, "Oh, that's really good because that's prevention, isn't it?" And therefore, what they're, what they're doing is they're overlaying the conversation with a health discourse about preventing illness. 
as though that's the ultimate goal of society. So if you you ask your 12-year-old again, you know, what's your dream? And they look up at you with big white eyes and say, my dream is to not have a mental illness. That's not what they say. Yeah. Yet a lot of what we do is heading us in that direction as though that's the win, that's the ultimate outcome. We're making zero the goal instead of plus 10. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's part of what I'm talking about here. But actually, so it's more than preventing illness. Anytime you hear prevention, it's usually said, well, that's a good thing. It's better than treatment. Mm. That's correct. But you're still being pulled back to an illness um, discourse because that's what you're talking about, preventing illness or disease. Building capability for the sake of having capability is actually a different conversation. Part of the product of that may be that illness is prevented and that's a good thing and illness should be prevented. But I'm talking about actually how we structure these conversations and what, what gets assumed as, as good without question. Okay, interesting. And so what does capability look like? If, if we've built capability in our 12-year-old, what's it looking like? Well, uh, take some really you know simple examples of, you know, if you're a parent of a 12-year-old, what would you like your 12-year-old daughter or son to be what would you like them to be able to do you'd probably like them to be able to socialize you'd probably like them to be able to do their academics you'd probably like them to be a kind person and the capability question would be what are the capabilities so what are the knowledge skills in real life context that this person needs to be able to use to be and to do so a curriculum person would have lots of answers. They'll say they need this, this, and this, and they'll look at the Australian curriculum, which immediately takes us, as I just said, it takes us to that conversation about learning and what people need to know and how they develop it over time, as opposed to if we went in from a medical framework, it would be, all right, what problems have they got? What symptoms do we need to deal with? Which for some people is really important mm. uh, and absolutely necessary, but my point here is that that should not and need not be the default way we talk about it. I would prefer to start with the learning discussion about capabilities and then, if needed, bring in the medical approach as necessary rather than assuming that's immediately what's needed. I'm not sure if I've answered your question there specifically enough, but (laughs) tell me. Some of these things aren't easily answered. I guess what I'm wondering is at the moment if we have, you know, to use again that I suppose school or or child-based analogy, if we have a 12-year-old who is not necessarily obviously struggling with some particular issues that might be surrounding mental health or or well-being in some area who is generally getting along fine and okay is it that at present we sort of just kind of I say okay that person's good they don't need attention necessarily we'll attend to the people who do obviously need attention and is this about changing the conversation so that all the kids are kind of pushed or encouraged in another direction I'm not sure I've described that terribly well, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I I do know what you mean. Um, If we look at some of the current initiatives in Australian schools, social-emotional learning, positive education, these things are becoming increasingly popular. And what what, what they're about is enabling young people to learn skills and knowledge about things that lead to wellbeing. Mm -hmm. And in a positive education sense, that might be uh, young people learning what their strengths are 
learning about optimism, learning about gratitude, these types of approaches, um, which are, in my view, really important and really useful things. This is in addition to, not in replace of, discussions that may talk about identifying signs and symptoms of anxiety and depression and, when appropriate, um, suicide prevention, etc. So th- these are the types of things that are becoming increasingly available. Of course, some people would say this is not new. They might say, well, we've been doing pastoral care for literally centuries. My response to that would be, well, yes, that, that, that's true, but we, we, this was prior to the emergence of a wellbeing science where we've got, we now have a bunch of scientists around the world who are investigating what leads to predicts wellbeing in addition to medical people who have been helping us understand what causes disease and illness. Uh, and how to how to treat it, but the the rise of wellbeing science gives us a reservoir of information and knowledge, which we can use to underpin not only our school based interventions but part of our public policy around larger scale wellbeing. School systems particularly important because, like families, they're a huge lever in how people develop um, and the assumptions they bring with them about how we even think of and conceive of health and wellbeing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of layering stuff up. It sounds, you know, we had we this, are layering. this medical Absolutely. model. We've, we've layered it now with another twenty years of kind of well-being science. And I guess that, and and I love your analogy there of the the lever. You know, the opportunities are within our systems, our school system, um, our family systems, and you're now starting to think more broadly about our political systems in order to add another layer. Absolutely. And that's when I say wellbeing is everyone's business, individual, family, school, uh, local government, uh, workplace, sports clubs, communities, state government, federal government, everyone's business, economic metrics, the whole lot. Wellbeing is a people, when they truly start to understand wellbeing, they'll understand it as much more than their individual experience or, or whatever. It's actually a whole a whole agenda which has a lot to say about multiple things, including economics. So people start to discover how broad it is uh, and then they'll realise there's a lot more to it than they may have originally thought. So we're making it more complex with a view to making it more simple in a way. (laughs) Well, it's one of of those things is that you can come at it from multiple levels uh, or your entry point can be thinking about your child or it can be how you feel or it can be thinking about trade or it's like economics in the same way. You can think about money as, you know, do I have my pocket money today? Or you can think about national gross domestic product. It's it's similar in that way. It's very pervasive and it has, you can't avoid it. Mm. You may not call it wellbeing, but you can't avoid it. It's making sure that lens of wellbeing is always part of the conversation, no matter what we're talking about, whether we're talking about our, our family, we're talking about our school system, we're talking about our economy, whatever it might be, we look at those through a number of different lenses and well-being has to be one of the lenses. Absolutely. And that's why, I mean, people have been very interested in gross national happiness in, in the small kingdom of Bhutan, where I had, a, had the pleasure of visiting last year. Um, and essentially, gross national happiness is exactly that. It's a policy of the government which taps into how the people are living, but it's not so much imposed. It's it's taking the, the values of, of what the people are and how they want to live, but thinking about that right through the different 
parts of society, so in terms of their schools, their workplaces, their government policy, etc. And that's really what it is. It's, it's this thread which runs through their society and it's partly making explicit some of the things which people were trying to achieve and making it okay to say this is what, what we're actually trying to do together as a community, as a society and as a nation in their case. And is this something you would like to see Australia doing and, and other countries as well beyond beyond just us? Um, yeah, I think Bhutan is a small nation, so you, um, you're talking about less than a million people. So in, in many ways, if you're an Australian, you think of it in a population-wise as one of our smaller cities. Mm. So in that sense, it's easier because it's smaller. But in Australia, it would and should look very different than it does in Bhutan because they're extremely different um, nations. But my simple answer is yes. I mean, I was on a on a call um, this morning with Professor Arthur Grimes, who's a professor of wellbeing and public policy in New Zealand. And really interesting things are happening in New Zealand, where they they are the incumbent Labor government is building in wellbeing to their public policy in in New Zealand. So there are some signs that they're heading in that direction. There were some signs in the United Kingdom of going in that direction with local governments. And so different things around the world where it is happening, but the dominant economic narrative and growth, GDP growth, et cetera, is still very strong and pervasive. Okay. So we're building up that next level perhaps in parts, but we've still got a way to go. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's coming uh, and it's much more in government's consciousness. OECD are talking about it. School systems are talking about it. And this is why I've become interested in the, in the concept of wellbeing literacy. How do we communicate about and for wellbeing? And do we actually have, even have the vocabulary the community, yeah, and the ability to communicate about this in meaningful ways? Because it, some of it is different than the traditional ways of thinking about health, thinking about economics, etc. It, it actually comes in at a slightly different angle. And some people literally may not have either the knowledge, vocabulary or, or ways of talking about this that are necessary for it to become a, a more population-based approach. Yeah, and that, that's absolutely one of the reasons why the Potential Psychology podcasts exist is to give people who are interested a bit more exposure to the various different ways in which well-being plays out and to perhaps enhance a bit of that well-being literacy, hopefully. Yeah, we hope so. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting tracking across the different disciplines. Psychology, psychologists will unwittingly, not always, but often take quite an individual approach. Mm. And then because they're psychologists, obviously, they'll think about things in a psychological way. Mm. So they'll, they'll talk about psychological well-being uh, and they'll look at interventions and individuals' experiences. And so they'll be attracted to things like the things in positive psychology, individual character strengths gratitude given by individuals, individuals' emotions, etc., which are all good, worthy things, but at the end of the day, they are still bounded by the individual. And then you'll say, oh, no, we we also are interested in relationships, but usually what that means is they're interested in interpersonal relationships, not relationships between organisations or relationships between nations. Mm. So, as I said, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's one realm of a much larger system and it's one way of understanding uh, well-being. People often ask me what's the difference between 
wellbeing science and positive psychology. And I'd say, well, positive psychology is a discipline within psychology. You know, a lot of the work does relate to wellbeing. But wellbeing science is a broader endeavour of scientists across disciplines. Economics is a science. Philosophy is not considered a science, but philosophers will have a, a lot to say about wellbeing. And other disciplines, approaches like geography has, has a lot to say about wellbeing. And interestingly, when I talk to psychologists about this, they literally just don't know this exists, which is a reflection on how we build our institutions and our little fiefdoms. And we really need to start informing each other better about this sort of joint endeavour around wellbeing. Yeah, yeah. So bringing it back to where we started with that multidisciplinary approach and a more systemic approach for the benefit of everyone. Yeah, absolutely. So, Lindsay, I've got a little challenge for you now. We oh, I love a challenge. You love a challenge. Here's a challenge for you. So, you've just recently launched, for want of a better term, your thriveability theory, and I'm going to see if you can describe this for our audience in as brief a way as you can. Okay, how long have I got? <laughs> well, we've probably got another about 20 minutes or so of conversation, but see how, how brief can you make it? Not that I don't want to endeavour. I would love to get into the intricacies of all of it. We could talk about it for hours, but, you know, that, that's not the challenge. The um, thrivability theory is an attempt to bring together some of the key factors which lead to wellbeing uh, and thinking about wellbeing broadly. So rather than being a psychological theory or an economic theory or a sociological theory from the different disciplines, it's an attempt at a, at a multidisciplinary theory or framework to look at how people experience wellbeing. So there are a set of parts to it. Firstly, it does that. It describes wellbeing as an experience. There are different ways of thinking of wellbeing and what, what it is, and some people say it's just health or Often people give examples of what they do to have well-being, but it, it views well-being as an experience and three particular types of experiences. Firstly, one about experiencing connection, connection broadly defined. That may be connection to self, connection to other people, maybe connection to place, connection to community, those different types of experiences. The second type is experience of, of being capable itself. So ask yourself, when did you last feel really capable where you could be and do something and actually have an impact on the world, those sorts of experiences? And thirdly, the experience of contentment itself. Some of Western psychology might view contentment as an isolated emotion. Some of the more Eastern traditions will view contentment as a much broader concept where everything's okay and I feel settled my desires are reduced, etc., and I'm having those um, experiences. So in this approach, it's more of that broader-based contentment that we, we're talking about. So to summarise that, experience of connection, experience of capability, experience of contentment. So that's the end experience. And one of the things with thrivability theory is that that's it. So those experiences are well-being, not they lead to well-being. They might feed back and lead to more of it, one of the things with thrivability theories is, is treat that as well-being rather than saying these predict well-being. So that's the first level. The second level is, okay, well, how do we, how do we maximise these experiences? Some people will say, should we? I'm saying, yes, we should. 
and that just doing that is a debate in itself. But how do we do it? And I would argue and do argue that it's useful to think of the capabilities. And so the motto or one of one of the key messages of thrivability theory is don't pursue happiness, prepare for well-being. And that's an important distinction because immediately it makes a distinction between happiness and well-being. And the prepare part is code for build capabilities. So build the capabilities and then let it happen. What we're seeing a lot of is people really grasping or pursuing happiness and they're doing all these technical things. Uh, They're running, running around doing their five key tips to happiness and trying really hard to do it and get there and being really thinking they can go there in a really direct way. Uh, and then they find it doesn't last for that long and it wears off. And that's been some of the resistance to perhaps the positive psychology movement generally in the media at times, isn't it? This idea that it's all about pursuing happiness and, and we need to kind of find this thing and then all will be well in the world. And people saying, well, that's not how it works. And you're saying, no, that isn't how it works. That's that's not what the field is saying or, or what wellbeing science generally is saying. Absolutely. And you've got and this is where defining the difference between happiness and well-being, or at least the way we do it, is important. So happiness here may relate to a sense of pleasure or a sense of feeling good, positive emotions, those sorts of things, whereas well-being is seen as a much broader, longer-term, more sustainable thing that we're aiming for, or in, in, in our case, the ability to be and do or have those experiences which I described, which are more complex experiences. So a story about when you're connected, when you're having those experiences of connection or a story about when I feel capable with a, with myself or with others and I'm actually doing something in a real context or a story about that deeper sense of, of contentment, which isn't necessarily positive emotions per se and it isn't necessarily a highly intense pleasure-based situation, but it's this broader underlying almost existential contentment. So. That distinction is important, well-being versus happiness, but also the don't pursue. Pursuit, if you if you look up the Latin origins of pursuit, it really means to chase. So if we're going chasing positive emotions or pleasure, we might get it and it will work for a short period of time. But that broader well-being experience that I referred to, this is where I say capabilities are important because we prepare, we build, we develop knowledge, skills and approaches to better interact with our environment to enable us to have more of those experiences. And this is where the other disciplines, then say psychology, will jump in and or in education will jump in and say, well, what about economics and what about diseases uh, and things like that? And within thrivability theory, I refer to the capabilities as freedom too. They're things that enable us uh, to be free to do things. But likewise, we need to think about what we need to be free from. So if you're listening, you know, actually have a go. Think about five things that you broadly base that you would need to be free from. And I mean big things. I don't just mean daily hassles. I mean the big things you truly need to be free from. Uh, and people usually say, I need to be free from violence. I need to be free from poverty. I need to be free from, some people say, war, and war and violence. So those sorts of larger things. So thrivability theory includes both of those. Different people have different responsibilities on who's going to deal with that. If we could rush out and fix war, poverty, etc., 
straight away as individuals, we, we would. <laughs> We'd have done it a long time ago. Yeah, and this, but this is where we need a, a broader systems conceptualisation because wellbeing is a lot more complex than people would like to think. Mm. I choose those words very carefully. It is more complex than people would like to think. People want simple. They want hacks. They want tips. They want five secret recipes. And then the marketing industry does really well with that because they just keep selling them. And then we get this frustration because people have short-term gains but have been ill-equipped to think more broadly about the bigger system that's leading to leading or not leading to those experiences of well-being. So thriveability really is ability or capability. How do we help people develop those capabilities so they have an increased likelihood of those well-being experiences without ignoring all of the constraints that may be there that people need to be free from? Okay. Or disease, etc. So it isn't only focusing on accentuating the positive or developing the positive. It's also focusing on removing the negative. So I'm visualising like a, a toolkit that exists at all the different levels. So at an individual level, we need another set of tools, how to prepare for well-being. We need to have knowledge and skills and understanding and education and mindset maybe. And then at organizational levels that sort of system we we'd need a different toolkit and then going beyond that to governmental levels and political levels we we need another set of tools is that one way to conceptualize this yeah that works works for me tools are good and, and if you think about capabilities what's inside a capability and let's take wellbeing literacy as uh, and that is one of the probability theory in its first model will include 12 capabilities uh, and wellbeing literacy is one of the capabilities so what is wellbeing literacy how we communicate about and for wellbeing so do people actually have not just the vocab because that usually means words but there are multiple ways of communicating you know speaking listening writing reading composing if you like or creating things visually and viewing things these are all multi-modal Tough to say, multimodal <laughs> ways of communicating, different different forms of communicating. Can we actually do that about well-being? Can we do it intergenerationally? So, can the twelve-year-old we were talking about before speak with their parents about what they're actually experiencing uh, when a baby cries? Is that a form of well-being-related communication? So, if you've got more language to use about well-being broadly, and I don't just mean illness, I mean well-being, if our society has got more of that, we can use it and we can share it. And that's part of everybody's business. So that intentional use of language to improve your own well-being or the well-being of others, that gives you options, that gives you choices. Uh, And that's the capability to, you know, to be and to do. It's not just having an experience of well-being, but it's being able to communicate so that in the future, you can be and do more of that if you choose. Okay, so we've got this kind of experience level, then we've got this capability, which is sort of a, an active yep. being and doing, and you've used psychological literacy, having a language that we can all share as a great example of that, those sort of set of tools that we need across whole lot of levels and systems and generations, as you say. And then is there another piece beyond that? Yeah, the bigger, the bigger, when I was talking about the freedom from 
things like reducing constraints. So we know uh, reducing things like disease or corruption. So our big, our big social institutions uh, around law, education, economics, public policy, the things governments would be interested in getting those right too because they are often constraints on people. So when we say toolkits, you know, the toolkits of governments will be public policy for practitioners or individuals. Many of the things we're talking about is capabilities. That's what's happening in part. So if you look at positive education, we are actually building some of those capabilities. So thrivability theory is not claiming that it's all new. It's claiming to be a way of one definition of a theory is a theory is a tool. So in this case, the theory itself is a tool to help people understand the complexity of what's going on and where they fit in the larger landscape of people working towards uh, well-being. So, yeah, it's, it is useful to think of three levels, experiences, capabilities, and then the social and economic constraints mm. at the lower level, if you like. One other big part of thrivability theory is it views something I call the survival dashboard. So it views emotion, positive and negative emotions, uh, pleasure and pain, and what we call approach and avoidance motivation, wanting to move towards a positive thing or move away from a negative thing like a lion or something. It views those three. So I'll say that again, positive and negative emotion, pleasure and pain, approach or avoidance uh, motivation, that, that set of three called the survival dashboard. It's a bit harder on, on audio, but if, if you think of positive emotion as a green light and negative emotion as a red light, which I understand can be very contentious, but just stay with me. <laughs> I, I come from a family of colourblind people, but anyway. <laughs> oh, right, okay. And the pleasure is a, a green and pain is a red and approach motivation as a green and avoidance motivation as a red and that hence a, a dashboard or a readout mm. underpinning that that's that's nice uh, analogy if you like but it, underpinning that is the idea that these are all messengers or messages rather than them necessarily being the world itself they're messages um, and one of the things about pursuing happiness if happiness is positive emotion and pleasure then we're, we're pursuing the green light we're trying to go just to get the light. We're just trying to get the message of positive emotion or, or pleasure. However, it's just the message. And this is why I say don't fall in love with the green light because really it's a message on your bigger journey towards not just experiences of well-being but towards a, a meaningful life and a, your own particular identity in life in a, in, a, in, a, in a life story. So people can unwittingly, confuse, if based on this theory, this idea, uh, and others, it's not it's not on its own in this, but it's a way of talking about it. People have been pursuing the message rather than actually thinking, well, there's something beyond that. Positive emotion feels good. Uh, pleasure, obviously, by definition, is feeling good. But actually, they're messages. One's, one's an emotional message, one's a sensory message, and the other one's a motivational message. Different types of messages in your survival dashboard, they help you, they help you survive. But if we focus on those alone, we kind of, falling in love with the green light and we're, we're not seeing the bigger picture around well-being over time. But they're not the end goal in themselves, but they're steps on there. If we kind of imagine scaling a mountain, they're sort of the little steps that will give you feedback as you go along as you scale the mountain, which may be well-being. I don't know if that's a good analogy either. But uh, the key word there is feedback. Yep. They're feedback on a broader journey. Yep. 
So they're not necessarily the steps themselves, but they're, they're feedback that you've been given as you travel, and hence the, hence the uh, idea of a dashboard. Yeah, a little navigational tool. Go forward, go back, stop. Yeah, navigation tool, exactly. Mm. But life isn't, you know, your ultimate goal isn't to be the navigational tool. Yeah. Um, and this is where people are getting really confused with their approaches to happiness and well-being. So we get distracted by the, the tools and not the journey, perhaps. Yeah, the old-fashioned ideas about the map not being the territory, there's lots of analogies um, we can use. Mm. However, the key thing here is if we truly think of those emotions as feedback, as pain and pleasures, as feedback, and the experience of motivation, and that those words are chosen very carefully, the experience of your own motivation, oh, I'm, I'm being attracted to that or I'm being repelled by that, they're all messages. And that is different than the overall more complex experience of sustainable well-being. So thrivability theory makes this distinction very, very importantly, um, and that leads us to not rejecting what gets referred to as hedonic well-being, so more pleasure than pain associated with satisfying our needs, that sort of idea, and it feels good. Not rejecting that and saying that's not happiness. We're saying that is happiness, but that is feedback from a larger psychological and social system. That's just one piece of the bigger puzzle. That's right, and there's more to it than that. That's what we experience in the moment. And then we'll re-experience it in a new moment. But multiple moments make up a story and we need to think about well-being over time. Um, one of the least appreciated parts of well-being is that time is a key part of what we're talking about. Mm. And we often trade off momentary pleasure for long-term gains, for example. So thrivability theory is very clear on that. Survival dashboard, what I've just been talking about there, the momentary Monetary feedback, but the longer-term thing is your own life story, which is made up by other stories of, uh, hopefully, other stories of well-being, which I described earlier, or not. But people get confused because there's all this language around and there's many different terms and many different things. And part of well-being literacy itself is to actually be able to work through some of this. In the same way, people are getting confused at the moment about all the advice about nutrition because there's so much information uh, and it sometimes conflicts. Well, not sometimes, it often conflicts. <laughs> I was going to say almost <laughs> always conflicts. <laughs> so that, that's part of it as well. So I don't know how I'm going in terms of trying to explain this. No, it's look, I, I think it's... Layers, it's complex, but that's part of the message too is I would say anyone who's telling you that you can directly get to well-being in two or three easy steps, I would say that's false. And I'd actually even go further and say they're actually part of the problem. It's harmful, potentially. They're selling you these really simplistic solutions. Yes, you can get pleasure fairly easily. Go and eat a piece of cake or something and you get pleasure momentarily. That, that's fine. That's what it is. That's direct. You can do that in a straight line. But most things you can't get there in a straight line. They're more complex. They involve the environment. They involve multiple factors that lead to why you're where you are. So if you go out this weekend with a group of friends and you have a really nice shared connection, there are multiple things that got you there. And it's, it, it isn't as simple as go and do that every time and you'll have 
you have well-being. There are multiple mm. reasons as to why you even have the money, the spare time to go out. There are multiple capabilities as to why you even developed friends. There's lots of factors that lead to that well-being experience. Mm. And if you went out saying to yourself, I'm going to have a good time, I'm going to have a good time, I'm going to have a good time, and that was the sole goal, you probably wouldn't have a good time. Mm. But if you had the capabilities of being able to go and then let it happen, that's probably when you've got your more authentic experiences of connection. And that's the don't pursue happiness, prepare for well-being um, idea, which underpins uh, thrivability theory. Yeah, and there's a big piece of perspective taking in this, isn't it? That kind of well-being over time and almost viewing it or, or the image that's forming in my mind is sort of the jigsaw puzzle of having, you know, we've got all these little pieces that are all parts of this bigger picture of what well-being looks like, but we really need all of the pieces and maybe it's even a 3D puzzle because of all of these layers. You know, we need all of those pieces in there together and, and over a journey of a lifetime, build that up and that is what well-being looks like is, is this complete puzzle with all the pieces in it over different layers and perhaps in some kind of 3D form. Yeah, that, that, that sounds as a, once again, it's, it's harder in a non-visual format, but <laughs> this, there's two things I'll say to that. One of the things is probability theory is, is a systems theory. So it, I, I've said well-being is an experience, but this goes to the next level. Uh, it also defines well-being as an emergent experience. So unpack emergent. If you think of your own family, um, there are family members, um, but the sense of emergence is that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So in this case, the family really is the interaction between the family members, not just the family members as, as individuals. Mm. And in the same way, well-being emerges. Um, so it's the interaction of the capabilities and the social constraints that I talked about and then the other, the other inputs like maybe education or employment, et cetera. So the actual opportunities that society and the economy affords and we can measure all of those and we can we can actually model how they interact. But what people don't like to hear some of this because it isn't a simple straight line, if I do this, I will get why. Mm. It's if I develop these capabilities and I can navigate my way around the constraints, I'm more likely to have those well-being experiences. And also different people will have different capabilities and different contexts so they'll get different pathways to those experiences. But if we think from a likelihood perspective, a probability perspective, we do know that certain capabilities will make good well-being experiences more likely. Mm. We know education by itself. We're not, not even talking about the type of education, but education broadly. We know it's a huge predictor of well-being at a population level. Educated people do better. They have better health, etc. We know that. Public policy knows that. But if you're already getting an education, then they'll go, okay, well, so what? Yeah. You know, a large part of the world is not. They don't have that opportunity. Particularly, we know young girls have not been being allowed to be educated to go to school. So this is where the, um, the broader theory drawing on human development work becomes important. Mm. And that's what I love about that notion of preparing for well-being. To me, it sounds as though it's almost like building the scaffolding at all of these different levels so that the scaffolding's in place and then we can allow the well-being to emerge within that. You know, we, we've built the right 
pieces and then it kind of just creates the conditions that allows the well-being to emerge within it. Yeah, it literally is creating conditions or at least cultivating conditions. I mean, yeah, I love being a university professor, but at heart I'm a football coach. Um, and what, what this means, you can train and you can train, but on game day you've got to let the team do their thing. And a lot of, a lot of our wellbeing experiences are like this. You, you get everything in place and then the experience unfolds and, and you can't make it so. Um, but there are lots of things you can do to make it more likely. But then things happen and it unfolds in a, in a non-linear way, not in a straight line, and you get feedback and you make adjustments. But a lot of our models have been linear, and this is where systems theory and, and understanding uh, more complex interactions of things becomes useful to make sense of this complex beast. And this is why we studied systems theory as a unit and master's degree. So it's, my, it's casting my mind back to why I learned that. <laughs> yeah, and systems theory, I mean, people say, what is that? I gave the example of the family uh, and the interaction between the family, and that was one part of it. There are other parts, if we think about feedback loops, uh, if you think about your thermostat on your air conditioner, these are all systems, these are all cybernetic models. They're all, so it's all around us. But fundamentally, it's the cause of the causes, what led to that, which led to that, which led to that, and multiple things happening at once. And so one of the things that's important is, going back to our schools examples, are we enabling our young people to think in terms of systems? Mm. Because that will also help us. If you look at most of our major problems, they're complex social problems, and people are not that well equipped to think about them. Literally, not just solve them, they're not that well equipped to even think about them. Just to conceptualise them. And that's why they, you know, we often see societies half puzzled because they can't make sense of what's happening politically, socially, economically, because it's just too big for them. Mm. So, again, that's a, a big part of this going forward. I would actually argue that's part of a capability is can we even conceive of all of what's going on around us uh, and make sense of it in a a non-simplistic way. Yeah, so we need a systems literacy alongside our psychological literacy. Yeah, and there is, there is, there are exactly that. There are some systems curriculum, which some teachers are listening, some people say, I'm already doing that, and, and, and no doubt there are. Mm. It's not accepted in the same way we talk about maths and English. <laughs> mm. Mm. So, Lindsay, we could talk about that for ages because there's so many bits, I'm sure, in there that we haven't unpacked. I've, I've but... <laughs> continue the conversation but I'm interested I mean from your perspective this is a bit like the well-being itself as I understand it It, it's a theory that is a work in progress it's it's creating the scaffolding to allow kind of the rest of the theory to emerge in between where do you want to take this what's the ultimate goal for you in creating this this model um, two parts. Firstly, I won't go to the ultimate goal first. I'll go to the I'll go to the how instead of the goal. Just just to pick up on the we're talking about different capabilities. So currently, we're doing a fair bit of work in terms of what should the capabilities be. Uh, I've said wellbeing literacy is one of them, and that's because I'm I'm already well across the literature on on literacy and how literacy leads to wellbeing. And I'm saying well, we'll take the wellbeing part of that literacy because that's most directly going to lead well-being but other people would say oh you've got to have mindfulness in there or you've got to have some people will say they want to have spirituality and 
nothing against spirituality, but my question back is how's the capability? What do you need to what's the knowledge base, what's the skill base for that to what's in the toolkit? To be able to do things. And then you mentioned perspective taking before. I mean, is perspective taking part of a broader relational capability? So currently we're going through the literature and doing lots of literature reviewing, systematic literature reviews, meta-analyses to not just things don't just get in there because people like them. They get in there because there's substantive empirical and other evidence that it relates to and, and is likely to undergird well-being. And there are different people who have done variations on this type of work before. It's not totally new, but that direct packaging of them as capabilities for well-being is not totally new, but hasn't been done that much. Nussbaum's work on capabilities has done something slightly similar. But yeah, so listeners can actually do that themselves. Have a think about if you had to list 12 capabilities of things that people can learn, uh, and that's the key. What is a capability? It's something you can be and do, but it's it's tractable, it's teachable and learnable. What 12 would you pick that predicts people's well-being? Or lead, not just predicts, but leads to, enables, increases the likelihood of having that experience. And this, you get interesting answers. Some people will say connection with nature. Some people will say compassion. Some people will say creativity. Some people will say learning and mastery. So people say, well, what about physical fitness? What about self-acceptance? What about self-regulation? What about living in line with my values? All of these, essentially many of them are psychological in nature, and that's fine because they're, they're capabilities, things we can be, be and do and learnable things. But that's where we're at at the moment in terms of getting the evidence base to justify why those would be in, in the theory as capabilities. And then the second part of what you asked was ultimate goal. Mm. I think there are several ultimate goal. The ultimate, ultimate goal is to improve the well-being of the whole population. And then thrivability theory has different bits. So capabilities, that's going to interest practitioners and educators. The, the stuff about freedom from, um, that relates to a lot of the work that's already being done in human development. And policy makers, etc. So different parts of the theory will speak to different members of society. But part of the ultimate goal is to get cross communication to lead to population based wellbeing, which is similar to some of the stuff which is being done with social determinants of health, etc. Similar to positive education in the sense of building the capabilities in the school system. But yeah, in some ultimate goal population-based well-being. So for you, really building a model and a theory and a toolkit that really will enable others to enable others and lead, hopefully, to greater global well-being. Yeah, and the enabling others to enable others is exactly that. There are lots of great people doing great things, and so people say we're already doing that and it's like yep absolutely already doing it how can we do it on a larger scale Uh, and how can we do it in a way where people can understand where they fit in that larger puzzle so the educator or the policymaker or the individual or the family member or the local community club where do they fit in this broader population-based discussion of of well-being and you mentioned global well-being absolutely we've got nations around the world who are 
taking indices of national indices of well-being or happiness and increasing policy agendas around that. And we will see more of that as the disquiet with current paradigms become more evident. And we are seeing disquiet with current institutions, current political institutions, parliament, current economic policies around the world. We're seeing a lot of disruption happening and people will be looking for alternative ways of having happy lives in communities and society. So it fits into a much larger debate and discourse. Mm -hmm. It's a huge goal, but it's an exciting goal and it's clearly going to be a big part of the puzzle that will get us closer to that goal. I'm very excited to see how it emerges. I will put all of the detail. I'll put a link to the Dean's Address that you gave recently at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. I'll put a link to that for listeners who'd like to see, this way you get to see as well as hear Lindsay in action. And there are some of those visuals that we mentioned as well in the slides that you showed during that presentation. So I'll pop a link to that in the show notes for this episode that people can find out more. I'll also pop a link to the interview that you did with Libby Gore recently on Melbourne's ABC radio. Can, can I ask you one question? Of course we... you may. Yeah, yeah. What's your favourite idea that we've covered? <gasps> My favourite? Oh, goodness me. That's a really challenging question. You know, and I don't know if this is an idea or, or just the concept, really. I think the thing that appeals to me most is just having a framework that it's that preparing an emergence idea, I think, that concept that excites me most, that there is a framework there that if we can allow everyone, we can create the literacy, we can create the skills, the capability across, you know, I'm visualising the generations and communities and populations and then allowing well-being to emerge from that. That's the bit that excites me most, I think. Great. Besides me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, good, because you've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> Everybody does, yes. Everybody does. We'll all work on it together. Lindsay, I really do appreciate your time. It is really exciting stuff. There's so much more and, and hopefully we'll get another opportunity to explore this a little here on the show. I appreciate your time. People can find out more and just thank you. You're very welcome. Lovely to join with you and um, I'm always looking for people to have more of these conversations. So thank you. Thank you as always for being here and listening with me to Professor Lindsay Odes talking about thrivability theory. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of excited about the possibilities of encapsulating thriving and well-being in a way that may be able to just help us bring a greater level of well-being to the whole world. Next up, a quick reminder of the exciting things that are happening here at the Potential Psychology Podcast and the Potential Psychology World more generally. I have my first ever ebook, the, Pos the Positive Parenting Toolkit, which is now available online via our website. And it's a compilation of the biggest, best and most helpful positive parenting ideas that I have come across, that I've researched and that I've used myself. So plenty of practical strategies and tips to help your family to thrive in 2019. And if you enjoyed today's episode, 
or enjoying the podcast in its entirety, please let us know. We do have many more great interviews lined up for this season and I'm really keen to hear what you're enjoying the most. So the easiest way to do that is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Um, I read and appreciate every review, rating and comment. Or if you're interested, you can find me on social media at Potential Psychology. That's on Facebook. It's on Instagram, Twitter, pretty much if you Google Potential Psychology, you'll find me somewhere. So um, find me there on social media and drop me a line. Let me know what it is you're enjoying most. Next week on the podcast, we are talking parenting again. We haven't done that for a little while. And my guest is the delightful Professor Lee Waters, who's going to talk to us about strength-based parenting and flicking the switch to a more positive approach that helps both kids and also helps us as parents. I really enjoyed this interview with Lee and I'm really excited to be bringing it to you next week. That is episode 33 of the Potential Psychology Podcast. Thanks as always for listening. I am really looking forward to being back with you next week. 